condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. The world for people who think... Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Behind the Headlines. Today is June 4th, and I'm your host, Shane LaChance. And today in our virtual studio, we have Neil Bradley. Hi, everyone. Harrison Cayley. Hello. And Corey Schenk. Hello, everybody. So we have uh, quite a bit of global insanity to discuss today. The left uh, within the United States appear to be going through quite a disintegration, um, and they even seem to be imploding on themselves. Uh, victimhood is a new kind of culture that's spreading rapidly, and the results are so absurd and drastic that you can only hope that people are able to see just the utter ridiculousness and falseness of uh, this this postmodern reality that they're trying to impose on everybody. Meanwhile, things are uh, heating up on the global scale. We have uh, the ISIS outbreak in the Philippines, and we have quite a uproar over Trump's uh, withdrawal from the Paris Climate Agreement. Oh my and, God, we're all gonna die! <laughs> and that was uh, following his his visit to Europe with uh, the near obsolete NATO and the G7 meetings. And amid this, uh, we have uh, continual terror threats and attacks in uh, London and in the UK. Uh, with the snap elections uh, due to arrive uh, this week, coming up. So um, do we want to start with uh, the, the, UK, the UK mess? Yeah, let's start with that. So this comes just on the heels of the Manchester attack. Um, we talked about that last week, all the kind of Libyan connections to that Libyan and, uh, well, Libyan terror groups and uh, UK intelligence. And now this one happened, just happened last night. So from what I can tell from reading the, a few accounts and, uh, summaries of what's going on <clears throat> and what happened, excuse me. So first reports were that, um, a, a, a van had run over several people. This was last night. It was last night. Yeah. On the London bridge. And so uh, Drudge pretty much immediately tweeted, oh, terror attack, truck runs over 20 people. And then uh, Trump retweeted that. And then NBC said, oh, this is unconfirmed. We can't retweet Trump's tweet. Um, and then it looks like uh, that's kind of what happened. So the story is that these, from my witnesses, that three guys were in this van, a rental, white rental van, kind of like a, a Hertz truck, just, you know, a, a kind of, moving truck anyone can rent. They were driving it down on the wrong side of the road on London Bridge. Um, initial accounts are kind of sketchy whether they actually, like one guy saw, he said they essentially ran into the side of the bridge and he just saw people kind of jumping and running out of the way. So he didn't see anyone actually get hit, but apparently a bunch of people did get hit from other accounts. So I don't know about that yet. And then these three guys got out of the, uh, out of the van and... Um, with like 10 to 12 inch hunting knives and 
um, just started like running down the bridge to the kind of the little market center that's you know on one end of the bridge and just started randomly stabbing people now this uh this is the same incident or i thought uh, it wasn't they weren't separate incidents happening at the same time this is the Mm -hmm. same thing so well the initial reports were that there were two or three incidents like um you know like two kilometers or so apart from each other one you know first there was the 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 van ramming and then there were the stabbings and then another one in a different region called you know i don't know how to pronounce it vohal or something like that Vauxhall. Vauxhall. and so later on police said that that was an unrelated incident so i don't even know what happened there i didn't look up um you know what was actually reported the only thing i saw that you know that there was something that they were initially tying together now they're saying it was separate but these two others were connected because these three guys apparently were you know observed getting out of the van and then immediately you know starting to stab people after running down the bridge and so within like eight minutes of this happening, the police were called and the police came in. So apparently it only lasted eight minutes. These guys stabbed um, seven people to death and injured 48 more. Again, I'm not sure how many of those injuries were from the, the van and how many were from stabbings. But you, you uh, hear eyewitness reports of these people just like, you know, stabbing people multiple times, you know, in the neck, in the torso. And one guy, and you know, only one guy that I've seen so far, says that they were yelling that this is for Allah. Mm-hmm. And interesting, I, I read, I listened to the that account. It was on BBC, and the guy called in. Now, you know, um, it's kind of whenever I hear that, it can go one of either two ways. Because I mean, if you watch videos from Syria, I mean, that you know, these guys are always yelling Allahu Akbar. But this guy who said it, you know, that's why I'm waiting for, this is why I'm waiting for, you know, more kind of eyewitnesses to see if this is verified. Because the one guy that said it, he gives his whole account of watching what happened. This is the guy that said he didn't see them actually run into anyone. So he gives his whole account and then he says, oh, and one thing I almost forgot to mention, these guys were yelling, this is for Allah. So I don't know if he just kind of wanted to throw that in for verisimilitude or if, um, you know, he actually heard it or not. It was an important talking point. Yeah. And of course, so that's the one that gets all the headlines. But these guys were apparently, they, you know, there's a picture of, well, alleging to be the three guys after they were shot by police because police showed up, you know, after that eight minutes. And, um, and then were, there were reports of gunshots. So these uh, police shot all three of these guys. And um, they, the one that you can see clearly is wearing like camo pants and these kind of canisters strapped to his chest or to his stomach. And so this was the the witnesses had said that too that these guys look like they had canisters strapped strapped to them and apparently they were all just dummies they were just fake canisters to make it look like they were they had explosives tied to them but they these were just three guys with knives and um, you know fake bombs attached to them just I guess for the fear factor and all three of them are apparently dead now so that's pretty much as far as I can tell that's pretty much all we know about it um, all the kind of I've seen details. That. I've seen these photos um, of the guys on the ground. You, mm-hmm. can, you can see two of them. Um, yeah, they're wearing camel pants. And they look immobile, <laughs> dead, shot dead. And one of them, his face is now being censored, but blurred out. But in one image I've seen, it's it's pretty clear. He's he's uh, possibly Middle Eastern looking, mm-hmm. some or South Asian, whatever. Yeah. Um, got a. I got one one of those beards. Um, he's wearing camel pants, and yes, he had these things strapped to his chest. Mm-hmm. Now they were obviously they they were reported as meant 
made to, they were part of a costume, so they were made to look like they were suicide bombs. Yeah. Um, they've said the official statement so far is that they weren't that they were crude fakes. Mm-hmm. So that was for effect. Um, yeah. I think it is. I think it is fairly clear that they hit people on the bridge. Yeah. Because okay. uh, I've read some other eyewitness accounts. Uh, one guy was saying, um, he was there watching this thing, the van ahead of him, and he said there was a group of about twenty people standing there somewhere. I'm not sure on the sidewalk on the street, and it just plowed right through them. Yeah. Um, there's also some dash cam footage of from taxi drivers or other passenger people who were driving shortly afterwards and they pass people being tended to mm-hmm. um on on that on that bridge okay. um so it, that there's that incident which is a, almost a repeat basically of what happened on Westminster bridge also yeah, in central in march. back in march um and this is a the two incidents are are connected to the van then crashes at the end of the bridge <clears throat> And reports I've seen is that three guys get out of the back of it, and then they just start stabbing people. Yeah. And the area they're going to is kind of like had a lot of nightlife or pubs and restaurants, and um, it it, sa- it sure sounds like they 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 stabbed a lot of people. Um, and the descriptions of them doing it methodically, you know, going up sometimes as a pair or as three or as a single guy. And they just were slashing people, like slashing the throats. At one point, there's one guy says he saw a woman being stabbed 15 times. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they just calmly walk away. Hmm. So I don't know about this shouting for, this is for Allah, but yes, I've seen that report. But their behavior, the descriptions of their behavior are that it was methodical. Yeah. Clinical. And yes, then... They're shot as they kind of go around a corner. They're shot outside the restaurant, and that's we see photos of that restaurant or or, or pub, I think it was. Um, two guys very close together, one on either side of the street, lying dead. Within within eight minutes, they say that was their response time of armed police. Police in L- London wouldn't normally be armed, um, so this would have been a unit called in um, to respond to this. So that's the two incidents, and the third incident, um, the, it's they're saying it's unrelated. I think because basically someone else happened to be stabbed, which happens in London on a busy Saturday night, um, quite often, uh, and he was just another guy somewhere else, maybe down the road or maybe in a, in a whole other block, not, not even close to the scene of where all this happened. So yeah, it's basically those two things. A van going across the bridge, and then was there a fourth guy? Was there a driver? Don't know. But three guys get out of the back, and they're armed with knives and fake suicide vests, and they seem to stab a lot of people. I mean, seven now seven dead. They're saying of the forty-eight injured, twenty-one are in critical condition, and I mean that's why one of them died overnight, I think, and why the death toll is now seven. Um. It's not known yet how many of those were hit by the van and how many were stabbed. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's deja vu. Yeah, it's creepy and it's deja vu in, in reference to the the London attack in March. Guy goes down the street, 
his people, Teradak. Um, and it comes five days before the election in the UK. At the very least, you've got to say that ISIS slash whoever it was has an incredible sense of political timing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, it's hanging. It's, it's hanging. It's been hanging in the air in the UK since the Manchester attack on May twenty second. Really, I'm fairly confident that most ordinary people who never really countenance conspiracy theories before or just simply dismiss them or never even heard of them were saying to each other, you know, this is a bit suspicious. The, what, the, the, uh, Jeremy Corbyn releases a manifesto for the Labour Party and the day after, that's completely off the news. The campaign stopped for three days. So there's already a of this cloud of suspicion just, just hanging there over the UK. And now there's another incident. So, uh, well, one of the <clears throat> one of the interesting things too is that the uh, Metropolitan Police they they told people to you know basically get on Twitter and uh, is basically inciting people for for fear. You know, so they're ramping things up. Um, it is a move that I think they'd never done before. But yeah, they advise people to run, hide, and tell. And you know, it, it's it's just a kind of a kind of a bizarre thing to do. You know, you, you'd think that a city would w- want to try to you know maintain uh, some sense of calm. Um, and no, 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 right. no. They they apparently no, no. <laughs> The the response is everything goes on lockdown. So there were, I don't know how many police were then out in the streets afterwards, but in all the pubs and bars and restaurants, people were, the police would come in and then they scream at them, stay down, stay down. Or mm-hmm. if another order was given, right, everybody out, you know, hands up on your heads. And it was, it was lockdown. But I mean, you can see, you can see the plausibly why they want to do that. <clears throat> so they go, they don't know what's going on. How many of these guys are there? What are they planning to do next? So, you know, go into lockdown. I mean, that's the U.S. has been mm-hmm. uh, rolling that out in schools, in any public place, in private place. I mean, for 15 years now. So it's a, it's a similar uh, response has been programmed into security mm-hmm. services across the West. Mm-hmm. Well, and that just really gets into why why terrorism is such an effective political tool for Western intelligence agencies. It's because it's such a political tool and just population control method in general. It, you know, it doesn't really matter who's doing it because when you have a climate like that, then the natural response is going to be like, let's see, let's say you're just a police officer responding to, to a situation like this. What are you going to do? Like you walk into a room where you know where you you're already primed that there's been some kind of terror attack and you look and there's like a hundred people in front of you, you know, what's your response gonna be? How are you gonna deal with that? Are you gonna be like calm and collected or are you gonna be like, everyone get out down on the ground, you know, don't move? Mm-hmm. Like you're gonna you're gonna be seeing everyone as a potential threat. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's the purpose of it. And that's that's why it's so effective on both ends of the spectrum, is because, you know, you put you put um humans in this situation that's so outside of their comfort zone that they that they just don't have any idea how to deal with it. And the immediate response, well, what do you do when you encounter something like that? Well, you're you're afraid and you you're aggressive, 
And what else can you do? Well, Alexander Mercurius uh, writes, he wrote right after the attack that he, uh, he believes that the, the attacks won't affect the election at all because they haven't affected them in the past or they didn't affect May's popularity after mm-hmm. the Manchester attacks or anything. But I think what he writes, when he writes that, he misses the point about the deep psychological power that these kind of attacks have on people, and especially when they keep ramping up the tension and increasing the fear and increasing people's uh, susceptibility to believing in, you know, strong central government or whatever, that there's a lot more going on that, you know, could be used. And it could also be that he's correct and it won't have the right effect. But I think that if it is planned, um, if, you know, terror attacks are used to kind of uh, cow the public, that it might be that it's just not going to work the way they thought it would in the past. Well, that's the thing, like, because it's, it's not having an impact, uh, mm-hmm. like, the, after the uh, Manchester uh, terror attack, their, uh, May's uh, opinion polls, like, they, they continued to decline. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, I, I, you would th- I think that the intention behind, you know, these covert terror attacks would be, you know, that you scare people into wanting to maintain the system that's there, not to disrupt, not to, mm-hmm. not to change things. You know, you gotta, you don't, you don't, uh, change horses mid, <laughs> midstream, midstream or something like that, right? <laughs> mid, mid race. But, um, but on the other hand, then like the opposite side of the, that equation is you've got an election and like, uh, so you've got these terror attacks. So do we want to keep the people in that, uh, you know, that have been in power while we've been suffering these terror attacks? Right. right. You know, so, I mean, I can, I can understand both ways. I mean, just from, from what I understand about, you know, elections and election histories and these kind of like, uh, you know, pre-election surprises. Um, it tends to be that, that like what you were saying, Shane, that people tend to stick with, you know, the leader that they've got. But um, it it just it doesn't really make much sense why that would be the case when um, it's the pretty much, yeah, you, you pin no, responsibility I, I, on the people that, you know, that have been in power for what happens, right? Good. I, I, yeah, I rationally, think, you'd think so. Yeah. I, I don't think. On the one hand, yeah, it's clear in clear interference in an election, right? On the other hand, though, I I think it's um, they probably well understand that it has deeper effects, and that it's more about maintaining the regime as is. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeremy Corbyn is basically the populist candidate in this situation. They've been popping up all over the West, and he's just the next. Um, and doing this is I, not so much like let's. They're they're petrified of him being prime minister. Put it that way, they are. Um, they, they stated as, as much when he became just the the, the candidate, the leader, the leader of the Labour Party. Um, British intelligence said he was national security threat number one, above ISIS, above Russia at least at that time. Um, So, yeah, they absolutely do not want him, but they probably have to accept reality to some extent and prepare for a situation with with him as prime minister Mm -hmm. and ensure that the the regime doesn't change. Namely, you know, a word to the wise, Jeremy, we have a war on terror going on. There's terrorists everywhere. You still need us to keep, you know, things on the even keel. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you can say what, promise whatever you want during your election campaign, but if you think you're going to come in and actually change things, you know, 
you won't. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it takes me back to what happened in France in 2012. There was an election that year, about this time in May, and there were terror attacks in Toulouse in the south. And as we read it at the time, we thought, well, this is blatant electioneering, and it's being done with a view to ensuring or trying to wait the public's decision in favor of Sarkozy over Hollande. Where Sarkozy was basically the conservative, you know, strong and stable candidate, one about uh, increasing police powers and surveillance. He was Mr. Bling Bling, so he was Mr. Uh, he was, you know, on the side of big interest and got France into NATO and all this. So the thinking we had at the time was, well, they want to ensure that he is their man for the next term as well. And he lost, and Hollande won. But all the things that Hollande promised as a kind of counterweight, as a balance, as a uh, in opposition to Sarkozy, he ended up completely reversing, and he followed the regime. He followed what had already been laid down before. And he ended up being a completely lame duck president. His popularity was the lowest ever for a French president um, because not, not what he was voted in for. He voted in to try and change something in people's in, in, in the interest of the people, but the regime remained the same. So um, the, that's the thing with terrorism. I mean, it, it, it doesn't work the way they think it does, but there is enough of an effect to, they think, maintain the underlying status quo. So, yes, after Manchester, there was, you know, oh, Theresa May could get up there and grandstand. But neither she nor, I imagine, the security services behind her expected or anticipated that the public reaction to her grandstanding was actually, it worked against her favor. Mm-hmm. Because they, they look at, well, you're taking advantage of this catastrophe for your own gain. You're clearly you're clearly using it to your benefit. And that's disgusting. And now it's so it's so bad. <laughs> Her popularity is so low. They've had to mm. as I see it, because I don't see any kind I haven't seen any kind of popular support for Theresa May before now. But it's so bad at this point that they're having to adjust the official polls to say that it's neck and neck now or a little they have a little bit more for Theresa May, but mm-hmm. that is close. Yeah, it's down so to where, one point. Whereas <laughs> just, whereas just here's a headline in from April, um, in the British Telegraph, late April. Theresa May, most popular leader since the 1970s, as Jeremy Corbyn hits all-time low. <laughs> this reality had no ba- it. It was not real. It was in their heads. That's why they call the election. I think. Oh, yeah. it's a certain certainty. Shooting themselves so, in the foot yeah. again and again. Yeah. Um, so on the one hand, it, they anticipate only what they, they want to see. But on the other hand, even if they're surprised by the result, say Corbyn wins, doing these kinds of things s- still has... Um, they, they probably they still see it as a win. Because oh now we're under a constant terrorist threat, and um, it it would hamstring whoever wants to come in and change things. 
you know. Mm. Um, but yeah, just just to speak about the election, I mean, as I was saying, at Corbyn, for me, it's all things being equal, so no foul play. Well, we've already had foul play, arguably, with two terror attacks. But mm. all things being equal, Corbyn would win by landslide. Um, he may not. I know. Uh, but that's that's how that's how pronounced the situation in the UK is uh, in terms of Theresa May and all that she represents versus Corbyn. Um. So it's a really it's it's incre- it's incre- it's incredibly interesting what's going on there because it's, it's symptomatic of what we've seen across the West. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's incredible to watch actually. Um, the, the UK is going through a, 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 it's going through a series, it's like a, a cascading crisis where one begets another and they all feed into each other. I mean, from Brexit to Cameron resigning um, and now snap elections, there's all, I mean, the, the, the issue of the country's unity is at stake here because of the Scottish independence issue coming up again. And the talks as well about uh, the potential reunification of the North and the Republic of Ireland. So there's a lot of stake for the status quo in the UK, in London in particular. One uh, of the weird things is about that as a, an outsider looking in that, you know, that isn't really familiar with all the ins and outs of, you know, British politics, just looking at Theresa May's like performance over the past couple of weeks, it almost seems like she's self-sabotaging herself. Like she's trying to throw the election because it's just been pitiful to see what she's been doing. And even just the, the, like the incident over the debate and how, Initially, both she and Corbyn weren't going to do the debate. And then Corbyn says, okay, well, I'll do it. Um, But, you know, where's Theresa May? And you just look at at her responses to questions about it, and she just makes a complete fool of herself. Mm -hmm. And even, like, her delivery, she doesn't even have, like, you know, a good delivery plan for how she's going to get out of this. It just looks like she's, you know, scrambling on the, you know, on her feet trying to come up with an answer, and she just does, like, a terrible job. I have no idea what's going on with her. Well, there is the interview that she was doing on, on uh, I think, Facebook Live with, I don't know if it was Sky News or somebody else, maybe the BBC. And um, Jeremy Corbyn got on Facebook Live and asked her why she went to debate. <laughs> and yeah, like you said, you know, she makes a, a, a total fool of herself. I don't know. What, what do you think about that, Neil? What's up with her? That, that, that they're actually trying to get Corbyn. Into into yeah. power, mm-hmm. um, maybe they're thinking about that now, you know, um, or maybe she's just really a just a poor politician. Well, what would the how I, would they benefit I, I, from I, I, that? Maybe by you well, know handing him the the Brexit monstrosity yeah. that they're looking at, and they're like, well, good lord, we can't survive this. You know, politically speaking, we give this to. Time bomb to Corbin or something. Yeah, let him fail. Let him fail at it, and then we'll come back in. Uh, that way, people will say, "Oh shoot, you know Corbin, yeah, all that. That was a failure." That's the, that's something that comes to my mind uh, when you're looking I, at speculating at possibilities like that. 
I don't give it much um, probability, much, much, much of a chance. Actually, I think I think it's more a case that she is disintegrating yeah. in front of people's eyes. Um, very popular meme until this latest terror attack was to portray her as a, as a bot, as a robot. Not just because she is very staccato in her delivery. And, you know, she, she just gives very simple, oh, strong and stable answers. When she's asked about something complex or even something informal, her, her interviews are just car crash interviews. They're terrible. She, she cannot <laughs> just be normal. <laughs> she, she's giving these very stock answers. I mean, that's politics as usual. And we know what the appetite for politics as usual is. It's as vanishingly rare in the UK as it is as it was in the US last year and everywhere else. Um, yeah, it's not just that she's the usual pol- politician, but that she's failing in, in just delivering those simple phrases. She's mixing them up. It's kind of like this, this semantic aphasia we've, we've seen with psychopathy, where they put the wrong turn of phrase and the wrong noun in the wrong place. She can't even get her lines right. And I think that's it's either fear or simply um, kind of an instinctive aversion to being in the public eye too much. You think in the run of the election, you know, you're going to be out there as much as possible. She's, she's shrinking from um, TV debates, from public um, speeches. She's like, oh, God, I can't go out there. Or she's being told not to because the public response to her is just so tepid because she's so tepid. Mm-hmm. She's That's, really, really bad, and she, she seems to have disintegrated. I think it's um, pretty striking. It, it's, it's similar to what happened to Hillary. Hers yeah. was um, hers was a lot more of a physical disintegration. She literally collapsed. She was very sick. Um, I, I I think it's probably more at that level of this kind of person. They've been and her kind has been in power for so long, and now we live in an age where you know we've got the internet and instant communications. And it, it, it's it's because of this. Um, it's funny, you know, that guy. What's his name? The guy, um, Polish guy, Polish American geostrategist, Brzezinski. 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 He, he died last week, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think yeah, it was last week. Oh, he's inf- infamous for many things, but one thing he said that was astutely, you know, objective was that I think he wrote it in the nineties. The what what what's, what is coming in the future is a mass political awakening, and that that would be the number one challenge to the status quo, namely Anglo-American hegemony. Um, mass political awakening that that struck a chord with me recently because I, I know people people in the UK, I have family and friends there, and they have never expressed an interest in politics. <laughs> I mean, they don't they don't read Sot, they don't. No, some of them are No interest. But they're telling me that they were watching the BBC last night or reading on The Guardian or whatever. And, and just passively, they're not really, you know, sitting down and absorbing it uh, too, too, too directly. But just from passively hearing what's going on, they're picking up inconsistencies. They're seeing Theresa May look like a robot, making jokes that she is one. And talking to each other and saying something really odd going on here, but it's it's developed and they're developing an interest in politics. 
apparently there's been such a, uh, an increase in the number of youth, young people, 20s, let's say, who want to vote this time for the first time ever. Um, it kind of began with Corbyn, in, in the UK's case, a couple of years ago, because um, when he became uh, the candidate the first time, and he won handsomely, and then there was a party challenge. Basically, a coup was attempted to try and kick him off the ticket because um, the old hands like Tony Blair did not want him there. So they, they organized a second um, Labour Party election. In the, in the meantime, Corbyn had attracted so much popular support that people were joining the Labour Party just to be able to vote for him to be the candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had like the most party members they've ever, ever had um, explosion in interest in politics, um, and you see that across the board. I mean, um, but that's part of that's part of a much wider pattern. It happened in the U.S. last year. You know, yes. um, Zuckerberg was saying, "Hang on a second, this isn't what I created Facebook for. It was to, mm-hmm. it was for you guys to share your your intimate thoughts, or rather, simply bland, superficial stuff, and for us to sell it to the advertisers, and you know." get revenue from it. You weren't supposed to start using it as a tool to make fun of the political elites. And then he started saying, well, it's because of fake news on Facebook. So, you know, um, something's gone wrong with the algorithm here. You know, <laughs> So Theresa May is, is a, a symptom of what's going on. This, this bot is kind of breaking down and, and many other bots like her. And I think it's, it's what I was getting at was it's kind of the glare of public light um, beyond the echo chamber of what the media says is the public light, the actual public light, exposure to people in real time in increasingly large numbers um, is having weird effects on them. And one of them with, with May is to basically go, I can't go on the TV to Illinois. I'm, st- I'm staying here. Um I think I think there was a similar thing going on with Hillary um, last year. Obviously, she was phys- physically sick, but it was probably also a kind of a she would maybe turn up to a couple of rallies and there were like fifty people, and she goes, you know, she, in her calculus, she goes, "Well, I can't be seen with so few people. I mean, mm-hmm. that's just absurd. Um, so I'm not going to do it." Mm-hmm. Well, this um, the phenomenon that you describe about uh, you know people starting to pay attention to politics and world news it's it's also something that i've noticed in the united states as well and you know i think um things started to change uh when russia went into syria because the united states news you know really wasn't covering it the united the, the u.s news is, is is has been you know uh singularly obsessed with just domestic affairs which is really ironic considering all that it's involved with, uh, with uh, in, you know, overseas. And just, you know, Americans are notoriously known for not knowing anything about uh, in foreign affairs. But with, um, with things heating up so much, uh, you know, and, and the media not covering it, you know, that really led to uh, the interest in, you know, looking at uh, alternative sites like, you know, RT and uh, Sputnik and, you know, getting news online. And so I think the 
the media has had to go, you know, they have to go there. They have to talk about Russia and they have to talk about, you know, um, uh, things that are outside of, you know, the usual domain of, you know, just domestic issues. And, um, and, <laughs> and they do it so badly now that, you know, it, their, their, their fake news has become so obvious. Uh, and I, you have to hope that, you know, um, people do see, um, even if it's just, uh, you know, glimpses of how absurd, uh, the, the media has gotten, like it, it's, it's, it, uh, it's, it's crazy, but yeah. Yes. Hope, but be careful what you hope for. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of people out there are going to be hoping for Corbin and let's say he miraculously gets in. Um, and then they're going to be disappointed mm. by the reaction and the inability to do anything. But that um, disappointment's not so, necessarily yeah. a bad thing, though, is it? I mean, because um, well, that well, also exposes no, long one, no. some of the reality. Well, that's exactly, and that's what that, that that's part. That's what tickles me about this because I we had a glimpse of it already. The reaction to Trump, mm-hmm. and you know the, the, the sheer insanity of it, and the way it was. It's still today being pounded day after day. Trump's a Russian agent. What will this one produce? You know, <laughs> um, right. mm-hmm. it'll have similar similar responses, and those responses will be even more out of sync with um, the general public's view of it. Mm-hmm. That it will, yeah, it just accelerate exactly what Brzezinski foresaw coming—a a mass political awakening. And I, I think the thing with things like, you know, Trump being elected or the possibility of Corbyn being elected, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, what types of things that they might do or could do, which, you know, will be extremely limited. Um, but it is about, I think, more uh, about seeing or, you know, the public reaction to seeing that, yeah, the, this whole system's a farce. Uh, th- that's the much bigger issue, I think, mm-hmm. and relates to that quote uh, about uh, Brzezinski that said. Yeah. Yeah, in, in the in the information war, um it's, it's it's almost not so much about specific outcomes as it is about the the public perception. Mm-hmm. And uh I think that's why they're hitting terror really hard lately. You know, it's 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 the the blunt tool they have and it has been effective. As we as we sort of theorized in in, in previous shows, it, it loses its effectiveness over time, you know, uh, and then it's it's not so much as because people start to question because it's still all it's, I've, I've noticed that it's still a place most won't go. It's just far too sinister, um, that mm-hmm. they can countenance that these atrocities are specifically carried out by their their own in quotes. Um, but I realize it doesn't take that for people to be um, against the system, so to speak, or mm-hmm. in favor of of uh, a change of the regime. Yeah, not necessarily a bloody revolution, but just simply. Can we, isn't there another way to do things? We see in the UK's case, Cor- Corbyn has said, "Yeah, there's another way to do things," and um, I, I had a gander at, at the Labour Party manifesto. It's not bad. There's a lot of stuff in there. There's a lot of stuff in there that is the the kind of left stuff that we've been uh, that most people really. I don't know if it's most. 
it's hard to say, but that we've been bashing about the identity politics stuff. Um, we're, we're going to talk about on the, on, on the show. So um, we, we, I think uh, we, oh. do you want to just go into it or? Um, yeah, well, there, there was one other thing I wanted to just to, just to highlight how black and white it. Well, not black and nothing black and white, but the sheer contrast in in the upcoming UK elections. The Conservative Party is basically well, it's substantially funded by hedge funds, and of those, it's really just a few oligarchs, big bankers in London. One guy in Switzerland actually, and he's the guy, same guy who funded. Um, the Brexit Leave campaign, um, whereas Corbyn is largely funded by trade union donations, so the workers. Um, and yeah, I had a quick look at, at their manifesto. Just this passage alone gives you an idea of how dangerous he is to the status quo. So on financial reform, Corbyn wants to do something similar to what Trump wanted to do, inject a massive amount of cash into rebuilding the country's infrastructure. Uh, the figure Trump had was a trillion, well, Corbyn's 250 billion pounds, uh, and that it would be publicly, it would be a government issued through a new state-owned investment bank, so a public mm -hmm. bank, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, to issue long-term loans for long-term investment projects. So that's point number one. The second one was to pass basically the equivalent of the Glass-Steagall Act um, in the U.S., which was repealed in the late 90s, and then the story goes, uh, investment banks got mixed up with retail banking and that separation basically led to this complete free-for-all on Wall Street, and then the financial crash came later. So he, he wants to reinstitute uh, an equivalent kind of firewall between these two forms of banking. The third one is to break up RBS. RBS is Royal Bank of Scotland. I think it's the UK's biggest bank. Um, it has been nominally state-owned since 2008 because it crashed, basically. However, it was too big to fail. So it was kept more or less as a zombie bank, which it still is. But Corbyn is saying he would take that as just for starters and break it up and create new local public banks out of it. Um, one further thing is that uh, he would introduce new laws to adjust company laws so that companies would no longer be exclusively focused on their duty to shareholders, in other words, to making profits. He's not saying you can't make profits, but there will be new regulation to take into, take into account things like workers' rights and benefits and so on. Basically, what, what I'm getting at here is these kinds of things are like kryptonite to the UK establishment because the city of London is basically the world's financial center. The petrodollar is largely recycled through there. So so, so is the euro. Euro clearing um, substantially takes place in London. He would upend this sort of unspoken um, function 
but everyone knows it. London is basically the banking capital of, of the earth. And uh, you can imagine, like, right there, that that's completely anathema to how things are done in the UK. So, um, yeah, there's a lot more. Um, obviously, he wants to restore all the cuts that were made to existing government programs by, by the Tories. Um, he wants to make education free for all through a new national education service. So he would basically continue, in his, the way he's put it, is continue the work that was done decades ago with the creation of the National Health Service and actually see through the original ideals of the British welfare state that rebuilt the country after the Second World War. As, the way he sees it is it was that project was never finished. It was sabotaged and stopped. And yeah, that, that's kind of his vision. And it can be summed up basically as the guy is pro-peace, anti-war, and pro-investment and, you know, people actually working real jobs and not um, not leaving them unemployed and then rewriting the rules of what un being unemployed is to make it look like you actually have very little unemployment. Uh, uh, yeah, which is the same problem in the US. And Trump called them out on it. He says, you know, the real rate of unemployment in this country is more like 20, 30 percent. Mm -hmm. The official rates are completely bogus. Um, so and the other option words, is Theresa May, conservatives. Yeah. I was just going to say, in other words, uh, it sounds like Corbyn's uh, package is pretty much uh, exactly like Trump's uh, approach or what he hinted at that he wanted to do, which was to help break up the stranglehold that this kind of elite establishment, all of these financial and political dynasties have created over mm. the decades, uh, that the kind of stranglehold they have over, you know, production and financial uh, investments and, you know, basically just living like parasites on the rest of the economy. So you kind of break up that stranglehold and then more or less help people start living again without that stranglehold, you know, without that sort of status yep. quo. As he well. wants to, yeah, he wants to shrink or reverse the same phenomenon that's going on everywhere, which is this mm -hmm. um, increasing distance between the, the rich and the poor. And the poor grow, poor grow in numbers and the rich grow fewer and they grow richer. I mean, it's it's what, what always happens actually at the end of empire, but um, he, and it's a similar, I don't, know, I don't know if Trump has ever quite put it like that, but um, that would be a consequence of his idea of rebuilding the country's infrastructure. Mm -hmm. It would be, it's effectively a socialist thing. It's a redistribution of wealth. But Trump will never put it in those terms, of course, yeah, because, not. you know, in the US, you can't say certain things. Um, th there are a lot of similarities between the two. Um, but of course, on paper, it's black and white, isn't it? Trump is of the right, anti-socialist, anti-communist, anti-this and that. And Corbyn is of the left. But really, they're both populist leaders. They're both national. They're both just much more reasonable people than what we've all been used to, mm -hmm. and that's why they stand out like sore thumbs. Mm -hmm. And that's why so many people are going nuts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
That's why, yeah, that's why so many people are going nuts, and, and including the, the the same liberal, um, pseudo lefty identity politics obsessed postmodernist types in the U.S. that go nuts over Trump. Mm-hmm. Believe me, they, they went nuts over Corbyn too. They got behind the his own his own party. I mean, they couldn't stand him. I think now they've accepted it, but. Uh, the, the the official left, let's say, in the UK has been anti-Corbyn mm-hmm. um, this whole time. So well, maybe we can get into some of that liberal, liberal hysteria that's been, um, you know, cropping up every few hours for the past couple of weeks. Well, oh my God, well, Trump took us out of the Paris well, yeah, climate seemed- deal. The climate deal is one issue, but um, actually it was the thing that first came to mind was the the Evergreen uh, State College uh, basically kind of shut down. Uh, yeah, I've, I haven't heard about that. What was what's the deal? Well, that's with that one? It, it pretty. I mean, th- so there's been there's been kind of these ongoing uh, protests at um, universities, you know, across the United States, and Evergreen is just the the latest one, but. Basically, what happened was uh, this is a very leftist, you know, so-called progressive school, uh, very far, far on the left, and traditionally they've had this day of absence, a day of absence when um, minority communities leave the school uh, to discuss, uh, you know, minority rights issues. And this year, the organizer said. Okay, no, we're not going to leave the school. Instead, um, white students and white professors need to vacate the premises, basically. Mm-hmm. And one of the professors, uh, Brett Weinstein, uh, he uh, wrote a letter in protest to this call, saying, "You know, it, this in itself was an act of oppression. You know, it's not, it's not a uh, call to unity. It's not a, um, you know, it, it's very different from." Uh, the, the previous year's uh, activity, and as a result of that, uh, there's a you know about 200 students, um, you know, so, uh, they they shut down the school basically, and you know they had these huge protests. Uh, one was the first, I think one of the first ones was a direct confrontation with uh, the professor himself, and mm-hmm. you know there's uh, videos on YouTube with that one, and. Um, you know, he, he basically had to, police told him he had to have his classes, uh, off campus, you know, for a couple of days cause his, you know, his, his, uh, he's basically, um, not safe there. Mm-hmm. And, and the, uh, president of the school, you know, he pretty much, uh, allowed all this stuff to happen. He told, you know, police to shut down, uh, to stand down and, even the uh, police, the campus security, you know, they, they weren't allowed to basically stop anything. They, they were going to allow all these things to continue. And then these, uh, they had several meetings, um, which was basically uh, a rant and rave, just, just you know, these students ranting to this university professor, you know, about the inherent racism in, in the school and um, just these, you know, very extraordinary demands. Um, and 
you know, it highlights a lot of uh, what's happening, you know, across mainly in universities. Um, but you know, it, to me, it was interesting because um, to me, it's obvious that there is, you know, uh, apparent racism, especially when it comes to uh, police and dealing with like inner city and you know a lot of the uh, young black men who are you know just been executed you know uh, within the United States over the past years and you know that that's a real phenomenon but then you have um, these quite different cultures within these universities which are you know traditionally very left and um, and I think have done you know uh, what they can to you know address racism and um, the the complaints oftentimes, you know, in these, in these universities is, is about, you know, trigger warnings and it's about microaggressions and it's about these very, um, subtle, if, if any, you know, if there is anything to them at all, Basically, it's very subjective. Non-racist forms of racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's, I think you see the hysteria amount from that because, you know, there's the, there's these, uh, extreme reactions to, either non-threats at all and you know and they're not really talking about the real issues it's completely misplaced um yeah it's pretty it seems pretty psychotic and, and hysterical that when you watch the video of the the students attacking uh the professor brett weinstein i think his name was he um you i mean it's just filled with expletives and just barely coherent arguments and they're you know they're calling him racist and you said all these bad things about black people, you know, you, you know, go to hell, but he never said anything. I mean, it's pure psychotic delusions that I mean, all what he said was, uh, was just a minor protest against having all white people leave campus. He said, maybe this isn't a good idea. Maybe we shouldn't base this on skin color. And, um, I mean, the, his email is up on SOT, you know, for anybody who wants to see what he actually said, there was nothing racist about it, but the, um, the backlash against him was was clearly fueled by something that had nothing to do with you know social justice with justice <laughs> with justice yeah i don't know what social justice. why we have to like make it social justice or whatever it's just silly it's justice <clears throat> but he was the he was just one of the latest ones just before that, uh, Charles Murray was speaking at a Middlebury College, like a week before that, I think, and he was his uh, speech was shut down by a group, a large group of um, liberal, whatever, progressive uh, college students who uh, uh, disrupted the speech because he wrote a he wrote a book. He's the author of that book, The Bell Curve, uh, that has like a, I think it's either a chapter or a paragraph devoted to the IQ differences between different races in America. And he speculates that it could have been about environment or genetics. Um, and so, you know, he said that and there was a big uproar because, you know, it could be used racistly and, you know, for racists and, you know, bigots and everything. But I mean, it's from what it appears that his newest book was about social inequality and addressing social inequality. But the students didn't know that. They just went there assuming that he was a racist, you know, with his clan hood on or whatever. And they disrupted it with just like really warlike chants of death to white supremacy, no white supremacy, who's the enemy, white supremacy, you know. And they, um, after the event, they followed him and his wife and attacked them and 
gave his wife a concussion, this group of students. And so you're listening to it. It sounds like a some sort of a Bolshevik rally with their, they're all, you know, one of the, you know, there's one guy shouting in a big voice, uh, who's the enemy? And, you know, they're all like, uh, white power, whatever. <laughs> and, you're just, and you're watching this and this is at a college and they're allowed to do this. And then they attack them afterwards and they kept following them, this crowd. So you see this, um, what was it? Lobachowski says that, you know, at the end of the historical cycle, there could be the, you know, the creation of a, of a pathocracy. That's how the pathocracy can come, will come out of that. And you kind of see the spawn there in those kinds of movements. You hear its echoes or something, you know, as it yeah. Yeah. grows. And, and, oh. I was uh, just going to say, it's, it's interesting just how, you know, misplaced uh, a lot of this frustration is, you know, I, I could, you know where where is all this uh anger over you know the the genuine grievances of of all the crazy stuff that's happening uh in the world and instead it is over you know these these perceived and you know very subjective uh issues and it's 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 so wild you know how how intense it's become uh in the United States and how widespread you know, you, you watch these videos and these, these, these social justice warriors, they are, uh, extremely angry. And, you know, it's like when, when you try to pinpoint, you know, what is the, the actual, what, what was the, what's the, what start, what was the spark, you know, what started, uh, the issue. And when you dig down, you know, it's, you know, these very, um, minor issues mm -hmm. that, you know, if that, that can and should be discussed, but, you know, they, they, there's no discussion there. And that, that's, what's pretty wild is, you know, a lot of these, uh, universities, they were big on, you know, free speech and, uh, Berkeley, there was another incident in Berkeley a little while ago. And, you know, the protest there, the, the students just like, you know, destroyed, um, the surrounding area and, you know, set fires and stuff. And, and, you know, there's this, this issue of free speech is like, you know, off the, off the table. It's, uh, the, uh, American universities are now against free speech and for this idea of, you know, this, this victimhood culture, basically that, that that's, that's really being promoted. And it's all about, it's all surrounding, you know, these, the, this idea of identity politics and it's, it's just, yeah, it's just spreading. I remember in college we had to read uh, there was an you know we had to read an article about intersectionality, um, which is the uh, which is which is the buzzword. Word. It's the buzz <laughs> fake word, fake news word uh, created by a sociologist. I can't remember her name, but uh, basically she writes that uh, the whole idea is that uh, race, gender, sexual orientation, and class are all means of oppression and victimhood, and that they all intersect uh, so that one person, if, if you're not a white male, essentially, you are any, in any one of these other categories and in, so in a prison created by the white patriarchy or whatever, and that they all intersect in different ways and that that's how you should study gender and race and, and social class. And basically, it, it sounds like a lot of it, it's just kept growing and growing through kind of a pseudoscience. You know, it didn't, it wasn't. It's nuts. It's nuts. It's not taken as a serious scientific idea to be analyzed and, you know, you know, quantified no, through statistics. No, it's just yeah. a buzzword, a religion. It's, it's a new religion. 
it's endless abstraction. They think it's smart. Mm-hmm. While Americans, probably college students included, don't know their own history. Don't know about the Philippines, about the fact that the U.S. military has in some form or another invaded and occupied for varying lengths of times. Honduras, for example, 11 times mm. in the last 100 years. 11 times. I mean, one American knows that. Facts, you know, the facts are pushed aside and there's this endless abstraction with concepts, you know, that they have the luxury of maybe debating. That's the thing about the U.S. It, it's um, a country as a whole has lived high on the hog and it's been away from the suffering that others have gone through. Mm-hmm. Um, classic case in point. Uh, small news item last week, but for me it just summed up everything. One of the guys arrested, I can't remember where, where he might have been in Berkeley, one of those oh, yeah. black-hooded Antifa guys who was arrested. <laughs> There's a mugshot of him, and the headline is Tim Kaine's son arrested <laughs> for destruction of property. Yeah, I think he was throwing um, cocktail the firebombs. That's that's the son of Hillary Clinton's running mate last year. What what disadvantages has he ever had? What injustice has he suffered? He's part of the privileged elite. And there he is rallying and, and, and causing havoc, you know, and mayhem. And that perfectly sums it up. The fact that he's directly in there, you know, and daddy is meanwhile um, sort of a, a chief honcho of the phony left. I mean, phony left, left, whatever. In the U.S., I accept that is the left. Um, mm-hmm. In other places, like in the U.K., we've been discussing, it's a bit more nuanced because... British people understand that there was a left Labour Party and that it was taken over by fakes and that what's going on now is taking it back again. Anyway, but yeah, Tim Kaine's son is one of those guys in the thick of it, an organizer of riots, basically. It's just like what Jordan Peterson said, where he said that a lot of these people, they want the benefits of having all of the privileges and they want the benefits of having none of the privileges because they're not satisfied with having just the benefits of all the privileges. It's so it's well, so greedy. It's it's really ironic that uh, this the whole postmodernism thing came out of this postcolonial mindset. So it was kind of this postcolonial guilt period, and that really inspired many of the early postmodern theorists to come up with their you know nonsense philosophy. But the the attitude of the modern day postmodern liberals is a totally like patriarchal colonial mindset that they they the the privileged you know white majority have taken on themselves and co-opted the, the suffering of all of the you know brown people of the world and all of the downtrodden and they are now their spokesmen and they are now the ones to stand up for them around the world while they you know have their high paying jobs and go back to their, you know, big houses and, and apartments and, and go to, go to school and get a college education. And, mm-hmm. you know, don't really go through any of the suffering that, that, that they presume to speak for and speak out against. It's really patronizing when you actually look at it. And these are the people that are, you know, that say that they're the, you know, progressive 
um, you know, knights in shining armor speaking up for the downtrodden and mm-hmm. fighting for their rights. It's just really, it's, it's sickening when you actually think about it. And the, <clears throat> the big irony, well, another one of the big ironies is that these people have become the new authoritarians. <clears throat> They've got the authoritarian mindset when presumably they would be against any kind of authoritarianism as, uh, you know, a symptom of the white patriarchy. They're just like that. And you you see just you see that just in the examples that we've been talking about how they adopt the well they adopt violence as a as a political tool and they are against free speech and they um well, I forget the third thing I was saying but they you, well there's many to say <laughs> but they they stand for I mean they're they're essentially like you were saying like Bolsheviks they're these radical violent, um, closed-minded people. And, well, the thing about free speech is, is that they won't listen to their opponents. They won't listen to the people they attack. They just go into attack mode, and they won't actually listen to, the, to what the person says. And you brought up Jordan Peterson. Like, he's a perfect example, because whenever Jordan Peterson speaks in public, you get this group of um, dirty hippies that show up, and um, they're, they're st- screaming things like, transphobic piece of bleep, you know? Mm-hmm. And... If you if you just listen to anything that Jordan Peterson says, he's anything but a transphobic person. There's nothing in anything that he says that would even hint that he's transphobic. But transphobic doesn't mean actually transphobia, or if that's you know a real thing, or just you know any kind of discomfort or hatred towards people who are um, you know trans. It it's this. It's just a just like intersectionality. It's one of these made up words that can just then be made to. Well, the, it, yeah. So it's a made-up word that can just be transformed into any meaning they want it to, um, to then be used as a weapon against other people that they don't like, that they perceive in a position of power, that power that they want that for themselves. And that is exactly what postmodernism is. For a postmodernist, meanings, everything is meaning. So words are just meanings, and, and any kind of interaction or event in the world or anything, it's just a meaning, and it's a subjective meaning mm-hmm. and a relative meaning. And meanings are only tools for achieving power and keeping power. So you've got your meanings, and the white patriarchy has their meanings, which they use to control other people. Well, it goes both ways. So for the postmodernists, they have their words, which they imbue with meanings, which are then used by them as tools for achieving power. And it doesn't matter if they have any basis in reality, because for a postmodernist, there is no basis in reality, because there can be no basis in reality. They create it all in their minds. They create this this total fantasy illusion of everything, and then they use that for um, for a power for a battle for a power game, and and look like crazy fools. Yeah. And the one one other example that we saw in the last week or so was this whole uh, Kathy Griffin debacle, where. She's a comedian. I was never really familiar with her work. I didn't even know who she was when she came up. But apparently she's pretty famous and well-known. She was, I guess she was on an episode of Seinfeld, and she's been on TV shows and blah, blah, blah. But she you know, posed for a, po- a photo shoot where she's holding um, um, you know, uh, a prosthetic of Donald Trump's bloody severed head. And <laughs> so this got, you know, this went on... Uh, on TV and it was all over the internet. And then all of a sudden, oh, wow, you know, a bunch of people are saying this was inappropriate and uh, isn't quite, you know, a nice thing to do. And 
she and presumably the people behind this were shocked. Whoa, what? You know, it's just a it's just a joke. And you, this is an example of that disconnect, but that of you know these people are just living in some strange alternate reality where they think that this is just a, you know a, a suitable level of political discourse. And um, well, a few things on that. So when this happened, of course, Twitter went all aflame about it. And on the on the right, so you have people saying, "Oh, this is horrible! Um, look what she's doing!" And, and you know, comparisons with ISIS because the I mean, I I presume that's what the image one of the images that was supposed to be you know evoked by this um, photograph because she's holding a severed head just like all the pictures of the Syrian rebels in ISIS do. And so the you know that's going on, and then the left. People on the left are saying, oh, well, where was all this outrage with all of the Obama lynching um, dummies? And on the one hand, so I thought about that. So I said, okay, well, they've kind of got a point because there were a whole bunch of photographs and demonstrations where effigies of Obama was lynched. But there are, there are also differences. So I was trying to think about this a bit because I think that, well, first of all, both are you know equally, well, equally disgusting, like to, to show a... Um, you know, the, a black president lynched. I mean, it's pretty provocative, just like showing the, you know, Trump's severed head by, presumably by ISIS. And, but on, but there's some differences too. One being that as far as I know, none of these um, Obama lynchings were kind of mass media events by public personalities. These were done by a bunch of lowlifes on the street that were then photographed and, and, you know, put in the news. This was by a, you know, an employee of a major mainstream media, you know, corporation who presumably thought this was okay. And, <laughs> and second for it, 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 it's this kind of, um, debate that goes back and forth. It's just a, a talking point where, you know, if the, if someone on the right, like Trump or someone does something wrong, then people on the left will say, Oh, well, you guys were doing that when, uh, or Obama was doing the same thing, or you know, they come up with an example from when Obama was president and say that to point out the hypocrisy. But when you look at this, so there are a whole bunch of people upset about this um, Trump, um, you know, photograph of his head, and so the people on the left say, "Oh, well, where were you when?" Or these is coming from the same people that were doing, um, you know, effigies of uh, lynched Obama. Well. Okay, let's do the math. Count up the number of people that were hanging Obama in effigy. From the available photographs, maybe it was 50 people, you know, from all the examples that they can show. Are these 50 people the only people online talking about how horrible it was that um, th this photograph of Trump? No, it's, it's, you can't make that com comparison because there's a, 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 you know, a small bunch of idiot people that were, um, you know, hanging obama well it's extremely presumptuous i'm yeah. disgusted by both yeah how about that yeah, exactly. a lot of us were so it's probably 90 yeah. <laughs> percent well, the thing with this whole incident was uh okay yeah kathy griffin she did this uh really bizarre and stupid thing and um you know she got the appropriate backlash on twitter for it and then you know she made this video where she apologized and backlash naturally continued <laughs> but then she had this press conference uh she had a uh, uh, her civil rights attorney lisa bloom who's the daughter of a, a famous civil rights lawyer um uh what's her name gloria 
Gillian Alred, and you know who's been in all these high-profile cases. Oh, like, just as a side note, she was the one um, bringing forward all those witnesses before the inauguration about the, the women who said that Trump had harassed them. Gloria Alred. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. She's also, she's been involved in a lot of like, uh, you know, feminist issues as well as, um, I didn't know that one, but, uh, she's involved in the Cosby case. And, um, there were some cases where, you know, she, she won a, a victory with a suit against the toy company about calling, uh, about not, saying that these are boys toys or girls toys but but anyway that so this is her this is her daughter and uh she's she's she starts out with uh lisa bloom she starts out the press conference and you know it's it's completely unapologetic and she's setting the case for how kathy griffin is the victim here mm-hmm. and this so kathy uh, kathy griffin takes the stage and and you know she starts crying about you know how uh, Trump is a bully and how and her career is her, ruined. Yeah, how he's ruining her career. He's broken her, and you know this. It's it's such a bizarre, bizarre uh, press conference. It's just a complete train wreck. And you know I, I couldn't watch the whole thing, um, but it was it was just so ridiculous because and it really epitomizes. You know these social justice warriors who, you know, are actual bullies, and you know do do these uh, really bizarre and uh, acts, and 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 then claim that they're the victims. Like you yeah. know there there is yeah. there is a natural order of things where you know people you do something stupid and you get consequences mm-hmm. from doing something stupid. Yeah. But no, she's she's the victim here, <laughs> and it's just it was. Uh, such a bizarre, uh, such a bizarre piece of uh, the, the the news this this past week. Well, one ang- <clears throat> one angle I wanted to take with that and go into was um, kind of going off of uh, the article that Scott Adams wrote about it. He started he wrote about it and he he started the article by ba- by basically saying that he knows Kathy Griffin. He even I think he considered a friend or he said he, he liked her at least. She was one of the voices on his deliberate cartoon. And so he was trying to see this from his, from her perspective and give his kind of commentary on it. And the one thing that stood out for me when he was writing this is that he's, he's basically said that one thing to take away from this is uh, an idea that he's been talking about a while, for a while about these kind of um, the two different movies, like um, in Western politics and just um, life in general, there seems to be two com- competing movies as ways that people see the world. So on the left, primarily, and just from you know maybe non-affiliated people who don't like Trump, they see in their movie Trump is an evil villain who is the next Hitler, and then you know from Scott Adams' movie, the way he sees the world, he's a uh, you know a master persuader or manipulator that's just uh, you know doing all these things, but isn't the next Hitler, and that when that happens, when you're seeing the world through that uh, through one of those colored lenses, that um, things that might ordinarily um, that you might ordinarily think are inappropriate all of a sudden don't become inappropriate anymore because if Trump is Hitler then well, what's the problem with you know showing a, he- a mm-hmm. picture of his severed head right if someone would, would do that would were to do that with Hitler for example there wouldn't be the very much public outcry it would just be like oh yeah Hitler was evil so yeah cut off his head there's nothing wrong with that but what the the bigger picture or the bigger significance that I think that shows 
um, is that when you look at this, you've got a whole group of people seeing this, watching this movie with this certain, um, you know, uh, let's say blood, <laughs> blood stained glasses. Um, and that really is um, like a sign or a symbol of what these people are actually afraid of. They're afraid of a new, a new Hitler, a new kind of Nazi movement, a new dictatorship or authoritarianism. Presumably that would be, you know, if they could nail it down, what they're actually afraid of, that might be what they say is that they're afraid of this kind of totalitarianism or even, you know, evil governments, blah, 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 or dictators, um, or evil, you know, political systems with, uh, mass popular support, whatever. And yet they just like they're the, like I said earlier that the left is kind of the, like the new authoritarians. This is just another example of that, where the very thing that they are presumably afraid of, they embody by thinking that they are opposing what they're afraid of. Mm-hmm. So by opposing the new Hitler, by opposing Trump in the, in these kind of really radical, um, you know, violence tinged ways, they are embodying that very thing, and they don't see that that is that if anything, the new totalitarian totalitarianism would come out of their own political ideology because they've got all the all the ingredients right there ready for it and so that so you can imagine how many people um who hate trump who hate um you know conservatism or they've kind of just lumped all this stuff together how they would be fine if they were to see the real you know bloody head of trump on a stick or something held up by some person who's cut off his head like to them that wouldn't evoke any kind of moral outrage or disgust and that's exactly what happens in these mass movements like the bolsheviks mm-hmm. where the 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 kind of um that that kind of com- combativeness or i don't know if that's the right word that kind of um just conflictual way of seeing the world and seeing your enemies in your own society that's what allows people to to be able to engage in that kind of kind of violence or support a system that that engages that kind of violence and not really see how just how wrong it is and and what it leads to it's i think it's a great example of how you know emotional thinking can can lead you into such a quandary how the big lie can just hijack your your brain and then your emotions are running in one direction and and you know reality is in the opposite it's pretty scary Oh, <clears throat> one possible outcome of this, because I, I did see a lot of people, you know, all, all across the board say, you know, how outrageous and inappropriate and crazy um, this incident was, um, is, you know, as as people do kind of like polarize and things become more and more crazy is, you know, uh, the, the consequence of this is, well, you know, uh, I've seen a lot. I saw a lot of people say, "Well, you know, and this is like Chelsea Clinton. She's like, well, you got to respect the president.' You know, this is and this is a traditional line, and it's it's kind of fascinating to see, you know, statements like that being made from people like her. So, you know, uh, who who knows how things are going to uh, continue and what the uh, what the consequences or results will be from this madness? You know uh, how." The people who are normal, you know, should be um, appalled by, you know, things like this and 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 kind of see it, you know, for what it is. Um, I, I think that it, it's 
the jury's still out on that, though. Um, well, I think a lot of normal people are kind of experiencing that battle, um, you know, between the two movies that uh, Harrison was talking about. You know, they're, they're friends. You know, they read all these fake news stories about Trump and Russia, and there's just such so many of them that I could understand why a lot of them would be like, oh, I don't know what maybe Trump is a bad guy. I don't know. But for the people who are watching the, the Trump is Hitler movie, they must have had – a heart attack when they found out that he was going to destroy the earth by drawing out of the Paris agreement. Oh. <laughs> Those yeah. poor people. Yeah. Uh, that was another huge, uh, uh, I mean, people would just went nuts, uh, especially, you know, the, the media in, in the United States, this just went nuts over him pulling out. And, you know, people were saying statements like, Oh, he's, he's going to kill us all. And, um, you know, he, he's a murderer and, 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 you know, you know, really, uh, drastic, uh, statements. And in a hundred years, it'll only be, you know, a half degree hotter than we thought it it was going to (laughs) be. That's the craziest thing. You know, the Paris agreement, uh, officially, I think, what did they varied? I read two degrees Celsius to half a degree Celsius difference in temperature. Over a hundred years, and you know, I if think you went by like, the half, I think degree, it was point zero five, and this was the model that they were using. Yeah, that they were hoping for. <laughs> That's what they were hoping for, and th- but this model was based on if they did nothing, if they um, implemented some of their protocols, and if they implemented implemented all of their protocols, the difference was the same. That that was it. It was all half a degree Celsius, and no, that no, was not rounded even ha- down. Not a half a degree. <laughs> and that's point zero five. No, that's right. Point zero five rounded down. Yeah, and and then when you're dealing with these <laughs> to models, point zero zero. Yeah, when you're dealing with these models that are already rounded, it's yeah. it doesn't mean anything. No, it doesn't mean a thing. But they, but their argument is that well, even if it doesn't mean a thing, at least we're you know showing the we're proving to ourselves that we'll do something. It's like no, you're proving that you'll do nothing. That's exactly what that means. <laughs> you're proving that you're ineffectual, uh, just corrupt. And you know, there's three there's three camps, I guess. I think when it comes to you know climate change, there's the climate change deniers, and then there's the global warming folks, which this Paris Agreement falls into, and then there's the global cooling folks, which, you know, the actual scientists belong to. And so for Trump to pull out of this um, this agreement, which was based completely on just fabricated, mostly on fabricated science, um, then, you know, he's probably doing a lot more for the Earth than people know about <laughs> Especially if the Earth changes and the human cosmic connection, if we, you know, if he pulls out of something that's based on complete lies, maybe that's better for us <clears throat> than doing nothing. Well, the interesting thing though is be, is because the international community is so set on you know these th- this ridiculous agreement that by him pulling out, you know, the there is a uh, one report, and I think it was it was from a. Uh, previous president of somebody in the EU, and he was saying, "Well, you know, we might have to uh, look to Russia to increase our ties." Yep. Um, and you know, I, I don't know that that uh, how much that that will result just from you know uh, from pulling out, uh, but. But it's 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 interesting to think about, you know, because because Putin was like, yeah, this is, you know, uh, don't worry, be happy, uh, you know, think things will things will be all right, and so you know, we'll yeah, see, we'll see how. Uh... I think we need to tease out a bit what 
this is really. Um, it's a lot of hot air, of course, but there, <laughs> for a lot of hot air, it sure attracts a lot of power, powerful interests. Mm-hmm. So what is it that really interests them? Um, okay, so they got this theory that the planet's warming up too fast, and it's because of CO2 emissions going up. And it's, CO2 emissions are going up because of man-made processes, industry, simply us living and breathing. Um, there's too many of us, or we do too much, and we need to cut it down. We bring the CO2 down, the heat goes down, and then we'll avert catastrophe. So they have a theory. <laughs> so there's a lot of hot air in that. But the real consequences, the things no that they intended. actually... No pun hot intended. <laughs> well, no, fully intended. There's, there's so much <laughs> hot air. Those guys are warming the planet faster than... <laughs> faster than anyone else. Um, I'm kind of serious about that too, because I mean, if you, if you want to look at um, emissions levels, I mean, the elites and their corporate interests and the Pentagon and I mean, these guys pollute like crazy. Anyway, um, the the things that they really sit down and talk about, um, they kind of all accept the science. They don't really. Privately, they don't. Trump is just one of the few who's publicly said, this is a load of BS. But privately, they don't because they know that what is really behind it is something It goes upstairs. It's powerful. No one's exactly sure where it's coming from, but there's some agenda to force something through. It's not even clear what exactly they want. But anyway, you get a clue about what it is they want in the things they actually sit down and discuss. They've got these abstract um, timelines. So I'm the leader of my country and I commit to us bringing down our carbon emissions by 20% or more by this timeline. And here I sign my name and I commit. What's really being parceled out and the dealings that go on in the background are basically about the rates of development of non-developed countries, of countries that are in the process of modernizing. Um, it's all catched in this fuzzy wuzzy about saving the planet. But there's a lot, there's some serious business going on, and it's not just to do with carbon credits, it's to do with infrastructure development, how fast it'll take place, who gets to oversee it, who gets to profit from it, assuming it's a privatized, you know, businesses come in and they can, in theory, make profits from building highways or whatever it is. And what kind of technologies are used? So it's big business behind it all. And Trump's Trump's thing is basically, as it was, it it would hamstring the U.S. at a time when we need to invest massively. We need to rebuild our infrastructure. Everyone agrees with that. The left too in the U.S. And he's just like. And he's not the only one from big business in the U.S. that is like, we don't want to be hamstrung by this ourselves. Never mind us hamstringing other countries in the world and slowing their development. No, you can't, you, you can't modernize too fast. That's the message to everyone, to Americans and to the developing world. You're going too fast. Slow down. Everyone take it easy. Well, I suppose what I'm getting at is the, the, the impetus behind it is 
um, kind of at this retardation factor. Something or some people don't want the masses to basically alleviate their suffering by coming out of poverty or generally ameliorating the situation. Now, I'm not saying that's their specific goal and why they do what they do. I'm sure most of them are. A lot of them probably do believe the actual nonsense. They're so engrossed in materiality and they're so engrossed in the anthropogenic worldview where man is the center of the universe. They probably really do believe that it's all due to us or rather it's all due to you masses of useless leaders and we are just helping to manage and mitigate the situation. And yeah, it's just very interesting seeing the reactions from it. <clears throat> Did you guys see um, the reaction of the French president? No. No. <clears throat> Oh, did he? Well, he gets, uh, was that the invitation for all Americans to move to the, who hated Trump to move to France? I didn't hear that, um, but yeah, these saying these kinds of idiotic things. He he makes a video, I guess, at the Elysee. He, he's got a lectern in front of him, a French flag and a European flag behind him, and he gives a short thirty-second speech in English, basically pleading with Trump not to do it because together we are going to make the planet great again. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> uh, that's, that's one reaction, the, the classic liberal. Um, the, the, the European Union official you referred to, that, that's the current um, commission president, Juncker, who, who, who kind of crossed the Rubicon, at least in terms of making certain statements, by saying that... Um, well, the U.S. has clearly decided to go its own way in the world, so we're going to now be looking more to China. And I think he mentioned Russia as well, yes. And he said that, giving a press statement in Brussels with the Chinese prime minister standing next to him. Mm-hmm. So there is import uh, behind his words, you know. And the, mm-hmm. there was another statement from a European Union official. I'm not sure who. Maybe it was kind of one of those anonymous ones. Where I swear to God, it without mentioning the S word, sanctions, pretty much said we're considering mm-hmm. slapping sanctions on the U.S. It was an eye opener because you know in, in the kind of narrative we've we've developed over the years is that the U.S. is top dog and it tells everyone else what to do, but with Trump now it kind of sh- it shifts. It, it's a bit like having uh, tectonic plates and they're shifting a bit and if the US is one plate these other ones are moving in unexpected ways so if Trump is being an an American a nationalist considering the national interest first saying sorry look I can't be hamstrung by these deals I've got promises to my electorate to keep they need things, they need stuff, they need infrastructure, they need jobs. Um, but there's something else above and beyond uh, Trump, of course. We know we know about the deep state in the U.S. working to derail Trump and possibly get him impeached. But they are clearly pushing. And they can just as easily start to work through the European, through the Europe to apply pressure on Trump. Mm-hmm. And 
that's what I was getting with this with this sort of subtle message about um, sanctioning the U.S. I don't think that will have any meat to it, but um, combined with the response to Trump's visit to Europe and to NATO last week, where Angela Merkel again crossed another little. <laughs> sort of crossed the Rubicon as well by saying it's time for Europe to be independent and can no longer look to the US. And that produced enough of a kind of a ruffle, mostly in Europe, I think, that she had to backtrack on her statements and say, well, no, no, the special relationship, you know, the Atlantic you know, alliance as strong as ever, but she'd already said it. Mm-hmm. You know, the cat is out of the bag. Um, anyway, the European leaders, when they're making these statements, it's apart from maybe Macron, who's young and probably young and naive enough to maybe still be a believer of the the official reasons for for, for saving the planet. You know, well, we have to be all in together, or we're all screwed. But I suspect the other, like Merkel and Juncker, um, and whoever that anonymous official was talking about sanctions, so without mentioning that word. And what they're angling at is that by the U.S. not agreeing, we'll see yet what happens. Trump has indicated he won't hold himself, won't hold the U.S. to these international agreements, and instead develop industry as he damn well pleases. It puts the others in a kind of a a, a bit of a difficult situation because they also don't want to be hold, held to these kinds of agreements. Um, so, yeah, and the, like, as I was saying before, there's a lot of money involved because the, the kind of deal makings that go on at these summits are about how they're going to change the reality. So the infrastructure, new technologies, um, new energy sources, it's, it's, Big business, and it's done. It's being done with a view to the long-term future. So that was that was r- the real thing that upset the powerful liberals, anyway. Mm-hmm. For, for, it, for, for all for all the students and so on, I was like, but, but what about the planet? We're all going to die. But for the liberal elites, it was more like, oh, you've got to be kidding. We spent ages negotiating this. It's going to cost <laughs> us billions if we don't do it this way. Uh, we've got a whole we, people. There are companies out there that have started producing. You know, there are things coming online. You can't just pull that now. Well, Trump said, "Yes, we can." Mm-hmm. So, um, well, it's interesting too. To um, like in light of what you're talking about with uh, the effect on developing countries, uh, to consider, you know, uh, China's project, the One Belt One Road, and you know how many countries uh, it's involved with. You know that are developing countries, and that you know it's trying to build all this infrastructure uh, to create massive trade uh, uh-huh. within with you know Eurasia. Yeah. And so, so you know, does China believe this? I think. Well, I think it's tricky. China. I mean, China. They say the right things. They hit the right notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they have. I think they understand on the international level that they have to say the right things. And even the Paris Agreement, like they're, you know, they're not bound for for something like for thirty years. They don't have to make any kind of pledge. But for the developing countries, 
that are a part of the agreement, it would be interesting to know, you know, how how uh, how much they would tie themselves um, by you know committing to um, using certain types of technology and such. Mm-hmm. But China is is the leading producer of green green tech. I mean, the stuff that the liberals in the West, you know, praise to the heavens. China is like, okay, well, we see that this is this is mm-hmm. becoming a niche market, and, and I mean. It's so it, they're so dominant that the, they're accused of going too far and dumping all their 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 solar panels on the West, which might actually have some truth to it because I mean, uh, solar panels are extremely questionable as a you know primary energy source. They, they're a good auxiliary, but there's no way it's going to ever be able to replace oil and particularly gas. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so the Chinese are. I think there was a report last week that they've. Just started up the world's largest solar panel array, and it's like a picture of space is vast, you know, because they have this large desert they can do such things in. But so they're serious; they're putting their money where their mouth is, as far as greening the planet is concerned. Um, while they're being bashed for being, you know, polluters and so on, which is an interesting fact. Fact in quotes that came out of the Paris Agreement. The U.S. is number one in everything, or it claims to be number one in everything. But when it comes to polluting, they say, oh, no, no, but it's not us that's number one in terms of producing too too much man-made CO2. That's China. They can have that number one. (laughs) um, And there was one other reaction I think we should cover, Putin's. Putin was in St. Petersburg for the annual St. Petersburg Economic Forum. Did did you see that? uh, Yeah. Did you see that event? Or mm-hmm. parts of it, yeah. It's the one where um, that Fox News former Megan, Fox Megan, News Megan, Megan Kelly. Megan Kelly. She was moderator. Yeah. Which is <laughs> oh my god, and she made a complete fool of herself um, by asking Putin all these loaded questions, you know, just firing off the propaganda. She she touched on many topics. It was Syria. It was nothing. Ukraine it was Russian issues, but I think the first one. She asked him about was um, Trump's announcement that the U.S. was pulling out of or reconsidering the the the, the, um, the Paris Climate Accords. Yeah. Paris Climate Accord. Anyway, Putin gave a very calm answer and just said, "Well, look, let's not go nuts about this. It it probably just means the U.S. Uh, wants to renegotiate, which is probably true." And this would be typical of Trump's business strategy, right? Which people have been talking about. He seems to aim high and then, you know, meets in the middle and so on. So, um, so yeah, he kind of gave a roundabout answer. And um, he also affirmed Russia's commitment to the deal. In theory, Russia hasn't actually ratified it yet in the, in the Duma. And he explained why. Because all it is is a framework agreement that would kick in from 2021, but there's still an awful lot of work. People are meeting all the time to actually iron out what it means in practice. So everyone has agreed, this is why it is hot air. Everyone has agreed to this ideal, but they're no closer to figuring out what exactly it's going to to mean, you know? Um, And someone on our forum actually pulled up something. It's from an, an earlier forum I think it was maybe in Germany. 
No, I think it was in Russia. Anyway, it was about two months ago. Putin was speaking in another one. Maybe, oh, it was the Arctic Forum. And again, there was an English-speaking um, guy asking a question in front of this large audience. And he's asked about, oh, yes, he was asked about shocking statements from Trump's head of the Environmental Protection Agency. Scott something or other. Pruitt. Anyway, it was a, it, yes, it was a scandal in the news because this guy who's now head of the Environmental Protection Agency is a denialist. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so he, he's basically, he's on the record of saying, I don't believe this. And Trump, I'm uh, sorry, Putin responded and he began, let's just calm down here. And he, but between the lines, he said more, more than that. If you haven't you've seen this video, you should ha- have a look because he, he managed to say in the course of a roundabout answer, that it's not even a sure thing that global warming is real, which he also did in, in St. Petersburg last week, by the way, when he joked that it was so cold in Russia at this time, it was snowing in Moscow. And anyway, two months ago, he gave this answer and said, um, he basically said, remember, this is only a working theory. We're not sure yet. And then he gave a story about a Russian explorer um, in the 1930s who who claimed that he first noticed um, that uh, the ice in the far north was melting at an accelerated rate. And he also developed, he did some more research and found that CO2 emissions were going up. And that did, that doesn't, the point of telling this story to the audience was that didn't fit with the narrative that it's only in the second half of the 20th century that this massive um, hockey stick climb in CO2 levels began. Um, then he said, after basically saying, well, it's not a sure thing, which immediately puts him technically in the denialist camp, because you've got to believe this or you're a denier. Then he said, there's also other things to consider like natural cycles and even um, cosmic cycles. That was the translation anyway That was that was um, put in the captions um, cosmic cycles I, I can't be sure what he was alluding to but it was fairly it was fairly clear that Putin was saying I don't believe this mm. and he, but he, he was saying as much as he would say publicly um, without doing a Trump on it and saying it's all BS we're out of here <laughs> you know like, that's the difference between the novice and the more experienced political statesman. You know? <laughs> but I imagine these conversations like are take place behind closed doors, even at these summits, you know. Mm-hmm. But somehow everyone agrees to, to keep more or less the same public line. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's created a real mess because you've got this kind of what is a th- large minority all across the West? Let's say they're a third of the population, the so-called liberal classes, um, who basically believe it, and then they get really angry when they get agitated, when they hear anything to the contrary, um, like really angry. Um, and so when you have the French president making that kind of retort uh, to Trump. And I think in some other statement, I, I, I think it's right that he he was saying, you know, oh, don't worry to Americans, to fellow American liberals, don't worry, you, you have a place here 
you're safe with us. There are others of your type of mindset out in the world and you're safe. That's the kind of thing that goes on all the time. And you see it with this issue. There's a kind of a signaling process of the liberal classes to each other from capital to capital. Um, and it, it seems to spur them in, in their fervor to become even more dogmatic and become crazier and do crazier things. So you're saying um, they have their own safe spaces, you know? Yeah, basically, <laughs> their safe spaces are basically the the, the big cities in, in in Europe and 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 in North America and and elsewhere. Um, even even in Asia, I mean, I remember uh, seeing. Uh, I think it was after major protests in Hong Kong a couple of years ago, um, over. They were protesting over the right to have elections to vote in the, um, to vote in Hong Kong specifically, and that Beijing was saying, "Yeah, well, hold on, we'll we'll, we'll see about that." They weren't saying no outright. Anyway, it's it, it spurred this massive protest movement. That um, whole uh, umbrella revolution. Yes, that was it. And then initially, the authorities there cracked down hard, and then that produced a reaction, and then it became even bigger, and then they just backed off. And it's still kind of it's still there, it's still an issue. It's, it hasn't gone away. But there was an editorial in um, the Global Times, which is an English language semi-official Chinese. Uh, paper and it characterized these people I thought it was just I loved it, it characterized these kinds of people as having a fetish for western authoritarianism and it's descriptive and I think it was a sincere attempt to understand what is wrong with these kinds of people Mm. so they're everywhere, they're in Asia too Um, not just in the west but uh, Oh, like on, Japan on, anyway, and or Japan, of course. Yeah, Japan and um, I mean, even for a long time, uh, the Philippines too. I mean, you know, the, the population yeah. there has, has loved the United States, which is so bizarre, uh, considering its history. Yeah. So yeah, the global warming and damn, that really gets them going. And I think that's why most leaders are cautious in what they say, and why Trump has just given himself. <laughs> Because <laughs> he'll have he'll, he'll have to he'll have to climb down from that publicly now. Well, so far Nikki Haley has has come out and she told the the United Nations that you know he he believes in climate change. Everybody, Trump believes in climate change. He just wants to do it on America's terms. Yeah, um, you know that's Haley. the kind of message that's coming out. So yeah, they basically like you were saying. You know, maybe it's just part of Trump's business strategy where he goes big, and now it's like okay, so now renegotiate on better terms. Yeah. Um, but like you said, he got to back down from the whole "I'm going to destroy the planet" line. <laughs> Just yeah. really, it really goes against him. It's not a good look. Yeah, and as Putin said to to Kelly at that forum, as part of his opening statements, you know, calm down, everyone. He he broke he broke from speaking in Russian and just said in English, "Don't worry, <laughs> be happy." <laughs> As in, yeah, this is a serious problem, but it, it, can we stop freaking out? Because look, and and that, that reminds me of something else. He in 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 that other thing uh, two months prior, 
in in his much longer answer about it. It's very interesting. Um, he he said after questioning the scientific basis for whether or not, well, no, no, no. he accepted that it's happening. What well, what he didn't accept was that there was anything we could do about it. Mm-hmm. And he said that outright. That I mean that that's the bombshell. That's the that's the real nerve center of this issue for a lot of people. Because mm-hmm. when you take away that, it's like the, there's some instinctive freak out. You mean I'm not in control of reality, mm-hmm. but I, I I make up reality as I go along. You know, I I think that really that that kind of thing touches the nerve. Um, so he. He said that. He said something else. Um, yes, he basically said what the what things like the Paris Agreement are really about is finding out, figuring out ways to mitigate the consequences. And you you can see right there why there is a real life, real world interest, and why it's not all hot air because. And I'm telling you, these people are talking about it behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. If we can see that some places are having extreme drought followed by record flooding and then extreme heat followed by, I don't know, three feet of snow, then you can bet your bottom dollar that they're aware of that too. In other words, it, okay, it's a silly, let, let's just let the, there be a silly public debate about who's responsible for it. But they do acknowledge that climate extremes are real and that something's going on. Anyway, so he, he finished his little speech by saying that what, what people are getting together to talk about is how to mitigate the consequences of it. So that's the real hard, um, um, t- tangible issue that these meetings are about. Mm-hmm. An acknowledgement that it's having consequences like, you know, catastrophic flooding or something. And then how to mitigate for it. But then he left it hanging again by saying, we're not even sure we're going to be able to do that because, you know, if it's, if it's already out of our hands as to the, being the cause of climate change, in quotes, then it's also a work, working theory that we can even do anything to stop it. Well, and I, I think like that's something that you touched on was, you know, people are understandably uh, fearful of you know what they see happening with you know the severe droughts and, and flooding and and everything else like you said and as terrifying it is as it is you know people have they they channel this into we're responsible for it we can change it and it's much more terrifying to consider okay um, this is a part of the natural cycle of things and we're not necessarily going to be able to stop what's coming. Like, I think yeah. that is 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 very so much more terrifying. And, and when you think about what that theory now. leaves out, when you think about what that theory leaves out in terms of the scales of of global kind of catastrophe that could occur, um, you know, like the the kinds of catastrophes that John Casey writes about in his book on you know earthquakes, possible massive earthquakes, and you know ice age and all that kind of stuff. You can see, and, and he even said in an interview that a lot of you know the higher ups, the higher ups all have the information that he has. What he says, he's a former NASA scientist and a NOAA scientist, and he said that um, they have that information. They just they're not going to ever admit to it. 
um, because it's so it's so huge and it's so frightening that you know you you put that kind of information and energy into a population and there then where's your control you know then how how can you easily more easily control focus people on worrying about your political projects worrying about electing for you know this person or that person um you know it's it's a lot easier i think for people to accept that we're responsible that and you know that global warming will happen you know and then well you know there'll be there could be a lot of disruption and everything in the future but it's not you know it's 100 years out 200 years out whatever <clears throat> my my theory on it is that these people are basically how do you say this? They're basically without God. Mm-hmm. They're either naturally like that or it's been the result of the last 300 years and particularly in the postmodern age, so the last century. Mm-hmm. They've replaced God with man. And when there's no God, there's just us. Mm-hmm. So we are God. And I think that ties back into what we were discussing earlier about postmodernism. I mean, it's not so much that they're, they're terrified that this is God's wrath being voiced on the earth. They just simply, he doesn't exist to them. Mm-hmm. So it's somebody's fault. And who will it be? It'll be those other people out there, the uneducated um, masses. And I think it kind of speaks to their, their hatred for ordinary people. And their non-communication or their non um, they have no resonance with God because well they just don't they seem to naturally not have it so there is no God so we are the masters of the universe am I making any sense? <laughs> yeah yeah, and yeah, it's all progressive change over long periods of time. That's how the climate changes. There's no sudden uh, major catastrophe or whatever. It's all yeah. just kind of progressive, you know, everything's kind of smooth and changes slowly. And and then we come along and we cause issues. But there would never be a cosmic event that's so huge and so destructive that it could be that, you know, it would look like a sign from God, you know, smashing empires or cities, you know, in one blow. Nothing that sort of awful and gigantic. Um, it's it's all us. There's no God. There's no reason for life. This nihilistic kind of postmodern reality. The good so, news is there's so few. The bad news is they're absolutely nuts. And as we see week to week, they get nuttier. So, <laughs> what's the space? So, on that note, we went a bit over what we planned today, but that's all right. Um, yeah, I think we've talked about it. We, there were a few things we were going to talk about, like ISIS in the Philippines, but I'm sure we can talk about that next week. So, yeah, that seems to be an ongoing situation. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll just I'll just we'll say one fun, one funny thing about that. Well, not funny, but one interesting development from that. There was, of course, the the whole insurgency that's going on, and then there was that a, attack at a hotel or something. It's a casino. Casino. Yes. And and ISIS claimed responsibility for it, and then it turns out it was it's some white, some white dude, some disgruntled government ex government employee that was uh you know going on a yeah. revenge attack or something. Yeah, so yeah. keep that in mind. And 
with all of that in mind, um, thanks for tuning in, everyone. And thanks to Corey, Shane, and Neil. And Harrison. Okay. <laughs> and we thanks will, to Harrison. <laughs> and we will see you all next week. So everyone take care. Uh, see you, everybody. Bye, chatters. Bye, everybody. See you next week. Bye. Bye.